Hey, this is Abigail. And this is Dan. Together we pastor Hope Culture Church in Elgin, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Good morning, everybody. How are you? You guys doing well? Summer's off to a good start, I hope. Um, my summer's been off to a great start. As uh, Allison said, we kicked off midweek, and that was so much fun. And what a great time worshiping together this morning. Uh, there's just something that's so important about gathering together that helps redirect our focus. Just as a group, just saying, God, you are enough. Christ, you are enough for me. When we say Christ, you are enough. Saying you're our provider. You, you supply everything. And I just, that was good for my soul. And I think that's that's how it's supposed to be. Like when we gather together and lift up the name of Jesus, he, he gives us that garment of praise for the spirit, spirit of heaviness. And there's just something that happens. It's so good. Um, we're in a series called Summer Stories. We're going to be looking at the life of Jesus. And we kicked it off last week. We're going through the book of Mark, looking at these stories of Jesus' life because we can't follow somebody we don't know. We can't follow somebody we don't know. And being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus is all about becoming more like him. That we behold him, that we see him for who he is, and that slowly he transforms us from the inside out. So we're excited to be going through the book of Mark. Mark's all about action. We talked about how he uses that word immediately over and over. It's like an action film. He cuts from one scene to the next. He's ready to go. Matthew loves to talk about Jesus' teaching. He spends three chapters on one sermon. Mark's like, and Jesus was teaching, and this is what happened. He's all about what was Jesus doing. So we're excited about that. We're excited to look at it. And last week, we kicked it off kind of going through those first 15 verses of chapter 1. We talked about predictable resistance, how you can expect when you're doing what God's asked you to do that the enemy will come against you. It's predictable resistance. In our small group in the middle of the week, we said, um, if you don't run into the enemy, sometimes maybe you're walking in the same direction. And we just sat there and thought about that. Like, how often when God asks us to do something, do we have resistance to what he's calling us to? We talked about how um, Jesus was filled with the Spirit and goes out into the wilderness, all of these great things. And so this week, we're going to pick up where we left off. And I titled today's message, A Day in the Life of Jesus. A Day in the Life of Jesus. Because a day in the life is a common phrase. There's a Beatles song called A Day in the Life. We use it to describe things. It's a great interview question. I like to ask people when I'm getting to know them, like, what is a normal day for you? Like, what's a normal work day and what's a normal, like, just for fun day? Because you get to see so much about who they are and what they value and what they make time for. Because really, our, we live lives of rhythm and habit. And what we do occasionally is usually what we do often. And we kind of just repeat ourselves. So as we look at a, the life of Jesus, we're going to just start by looking at what does he do in one day? Mark kind of gives us this 24-hour, five scenes of Jesus' life and transitions with each one by saying immediately. And so we're going to look at that this morning. We're, you'll notice if you're going straight through, if you've been paying attention, we're going to skip the part where Jesus calls the disciples. And if you're like, hey, I love that. I want to talk about that. Come to Thursday night, midweek, this week. We're going to be talking about Jesus calling the disciples. So we're going to skip that part and pick up in verse 21. Then they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. All right, if you got a hard copy, I encourage you, Underline or circle amazed and underline or circle authority. If you got your Bible app, maybe you want to highlight it. These are words that you're going to see pop up again, especially authority. 
And so the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So Mark's making a distinction here. He's like, Jesus comes on the scene, and at this point, people aren't really sure who Jesus is, right? This is the beginning of his ministry. He's just been baptized by John. The Holy Spirit came. He spent 40 days being tempted out in the wilderness, and his ministry is beginning. And he picks up saying he went to the synagogue, and he was teaching, and everybody's like, whoa. Who is this guy? He's teaching different than all of the other rabbi. And so I was studying, like, what made his teaching so different? Because I've heard this before, and I've heard people say, you know, he taught as one with authority, and then they tie it to the next part where Jesus does a miracle. And they're like, it's because he backed it up with miracles. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But before that, as I was studying, I realized rabbis from that time, they didn't teach on their own authority. They taught quoting all of the other well-known rabbis, and they, they would quote other things over and over. They'd be like, Rabbi Gamil and, and Halil and all of these guys, this is what he says, but we kind of disagree with him and we agree with this guy. And they would go through and they would pull on others' authority. And Jesus didn't do that. If you study his teaching in some of the other Gospels and in Matthew, he just says it how it is. The kingdom of God is like. This is how it is. He taught as the one with authority, because he's the one who created it all. He had all authority. And they were amazed. They're like, we haven't, nobody's ever taught like that before. They were astonished. He taught with exousia is the Greek word. And it shows up a few more times. It's kind of the theme of Jesus's one day is his authority. And that, that word exousia, that means authority, can also be translated as author. It could be the one who created it originally which gives that so much more depth and meaning when you understand that the reason he had authority is because he was the one who authored it. He's the one who who came up with the substance of the teaching because he created it all, and he taught as the one who was the leader on that subject. Have you guys ever experienced that? When you're reading a book or hearing a teaching and somebody's like, they are the one leading in that field? There's a different authority with that when they're the one who came up with that discovery or came up with that thing versus the people who've slowly copied it over time and taken notes. Jesus was the one who was like, this is how it is. And they were amazed. I think that that has real practical application for our life because so often we are searching for truth. There's so many varying and competing ideas in the world around us about morality and ethics and and things of that nature. But when we understand where authority comes from, it changes our search for truth. Jesus, in another one of the Gospels, is recorded saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we're going to be having discussions about truth and things like that, we have to include what Jesus says. In fact, that's really where we should camp out and stay. He's the one who teaches with authority. He's the author of those things. So, as we're wrestling through things in culture and at large, we need to look at what does Scripture teach. Not just the parts I like, not the parts that that already agree with me in the way I was raised or the way that I view the world, but what is actually being taught by Jesus and in the Word of God. Because if it's authoritative— That means if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, we need to submit to it. We actually need to be willing to hear, learn, and apply what he says. 
I was reading this week, and I've been reading through Matthew at the same time we've been going through Mark, and Abigail's like, maybe you shouldn't be doing that, because I keep getting confused and be like, did that happen to Matthew or Mark? And she's like, maybe you should stop doing that. But I've really loved doing both at the same time. And in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, verse, in chapters 5 through 7, we get Jesus' beautiful teaching on what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. He really lays out an ethic for living in the kingdom of God and being one of his followers. He's like, you've heard this. Don't murder, but I actually say don't hate. If, you, if you've hated somebody in your heart, you've already committed murder. He takes it and makes it so much more real. He makes us realize that, man, I am not living up to the standard that Jesus sets before us. We need to go to him as the authority. People are amazed that Jesus was teaching with authority. Then immediately, this is verse 23, in the translation behind me, it says, just then, or maybe your translation says immediately, it's all that same word over and over, Mark cutting from scene to scene. A man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed, you see that word again, same word, that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. They're like, he's teaching with authority and he has authority over impure spirits? They're just amazed. This is something brand new. Verse 28, news about him spread quickly over the whole region. There's something about the authority that Jesus walks in that causes everybody who encounters him to be amazed, just to stand in awe. This is different than what we've experienced before. He's teaching on his own authority. The spirits are listening to him. During that time, rabbis and teachers of the law and, and Pharisees, they would try to do different things to get people free from impure and unclean spirits, free from the demonic realm. They had all sorts of things that they would repeat. They'd call on Elijah. They would reference Solomon and his wisdom. They would have oils, and they would, they would try whatever had worked in the past. They actually had this crazy ritual during this time period where they would cut a hole in people's head because they thought somehow that would let the spirit out. In fact, they did an excavation of that, that area in the Middle East, and they found in a grave of 120 people, six of them had holes in their head. That's, a, that's quite a bit. It's a pretty common practice. But Jesus just says a word. He doesn't do any Harry Potter stuff. There's no reciting anything. There's no waving of a wand. There's no incantation. It's just be quiet and come out. He has authority over everything. Not over just his teaching, but over the whole spiritual world. And they're amazed. I love Mark using impure or unclean spirits. In some of the other Gospels, you know, they're called demons. But Mark loves to say unclean spirits. And the, the idea of being unclean is an Old Testament idea. Some of you who've been around church and studied the Old Testament, you're like, oh, I know what you're talking about. It's Leviticus. It's that book that I kind of start flipping through kind of quick. And they're like, this is unclean. And if you're unclean, you have to do this and then that. And you're like, didn't I just read that five chapters ago and it's repeating itself? Yes, that book. That idea of being unclean meant outside of God's 
protection and rule and reign. So you would go through a process of becoming ritually clean so you could be back in his presence. These spirits, the demonic realm, have been cast out of heaven. They are not of God. And therefore, they're leading people away from God and away from each other. But Jesus has all authority over that. He simply says, be quiet, which is a pretty gentle translation. It adds that he said it sternly, but I mean, really, he's like, shut it. That's literally what he's saying to the demonic. And then he says, come out. And it just leaves because he has all authority in heaven and earth. When he's commissioning his disciples at the end of his life, he's like, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go make disciples. Jesus has proven at that point that he really does have all authority. He's, had, he's been raised from the dead. He's cast out demons. He's healed. He's done all sorts of miracles. And he's like, guys, have you seen what I've done? You just saw me come back to life from the dead. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go make disciples. When you think of that in relation to the actual ministry Jesus did for the previous three years, there's a different weight to that when he says, I have all authority. He's proven it to them. He's shown them the authority that he walks in, that everything responds to who he is. At the end of last week, we talked about how Jesus announces the kingdom of God is here. It's it's drawing near and it's here. And he's showing what life in the kingdom looks like. It's it's a life of of pushing back the dominion of Satan and darkness. He is the king of kings. And word begins to spread all throughout the area. There's a guy who teaches with authority. He even has authority, authority over the demonic realm. And so then Mark once again uses that word for immediately, cuts to a new scene in verse 29. We're all in the same day still. He woke up, went to synagogue, taught, cast out a spirit while he's there. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John, who he had just called, to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told her about Jesus. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. What's really cool is as I was studying this miracle this week, I always assumed that they were kind of hinting, like, Jesus, you could do something about this, right? Like, we get to Peter's house, and they're like, my mother-in-law is sick, you know, Jesus. But they've barely seen Jesus do anything at this point. Like, he's just called them, and they've gone to synagogue, and they know he's different. He's teaching as one with authority, and he casts out a spirit. But if you read this in Greek, they're not as much asking him to do a miracle as they're just informing him of the situation. You know, hey, we're hanging out at Peter's. Just so you know, his mother-in-law is in the back room. She's laying in a bed. She has a fever. So she's not going to be able to do some of the normal stuff she would do, like, you know, the hospitality sort of thing. But Jesus has compassion in that moment. The miracle is his idea. And he goes to her and lifts her up, and she's immediately healed, fully restored. Not, Not like this partial miracle where it's like, yeah, I think I'm feeling a little bit better. No, she's like ready. And she immediately responds by serving. I've heard this taught out of context sometimes to be like, this is an example. Peter's mother-in-law is the one serving, and they turn it into a roles thing. But it's very clear that that's not the case because the same word for serving is the one that they used earlier in the chapter when the angels attended Jesus when he's in the wilderness. In fact, it's the same one that they use of Jesus when it talks about him washing the disciples' feet. 
It's the same word that they use when it's, Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. So this isn't at all a, a roles thing, but it's a response to who Jesus is thing. It's a life in the kingdom thing, that we are people who serve. That we're people who put the needs of others before our own. That as she had an encounter with Jesus that he healed her, her immediate response was to serve him. Because love shows up not just in action, or not just in words, but in action. And if we say we love Jesus, we're called to serve him. We're called to serve others. You know, Jesus, when he says all authority has been given to me and he commissions us to go tell the world the good news, he also tells us how to do it. The great commandment, love God and love people with all that you have. But love looks like something. Love looks like service. It looks like putting the needs of other before your own. Mark 10, 45, I just referenced it. It says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Servant leadership is our identity. As followers of Christ, everything is different. Leadership looks like servanthood. We say this often on our team that if you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. If, if serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. In the kingdom of God, it's different. It's not about how many people are serving you. It's about how many people are you serving and that doesn't mean that you never delegate or never do anything. We see Jesus do that with his disciples. Hey, we need some food. Can you do this? Or can you get water for this? Or go get the donkey. But it does look like him always having the humility and a posture that no one is beneath him. That he will serve the person in front of him. That he'll stop for the people people don't think he's going to stop for. That the woman at the well isn't somebody just relegated to the side. It's a ministry opportunity. That when kids are coming and wanting to sit with him and talk to him, that disciples are like, not right now. Jesus is like, no, let them come to me. Servant leadership says, no, you are my ministry. You are not building my ministry. You are my ministry. That we're together serving the community around us. Jesus was full of authority, but he used that authority to serve people around him. That evening... After sunset, the people, brought, uh, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. This is all in the course of one day. This is still the same day. He was teaching in synagogue that morning, casts out a demon, goes to hang out at Peter's house, heals Peter's mother-in-law, and word is spreading about Jesus that quickly. That by sunset, people brought all of the sick and demon-possessed in the city, the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And this is interesting, just from a little context note. The reason the note about it being after sunset is in there is that they weren't supposed to travel and gather outside of the synagogue on the Sabbath. And Sabbath was Friday night to Saturday night, sunset. And so it's important for Mark to, to know this was after sunset that a big crowd is gathering. And Jesus started his day in synagogue. He's teaching, casting out demons, healing people. And at this point, word spread so that by the time the sun sets and people are like, hey, Sabbath is technically over, it is a crowd outside. It says many were healed. That doesn't imply that he didn't complete healing people who needed it. It's literally just a great number. 
Just a lot of people were healed. A lot of people were set free as Jesus served. I was thinking about this, that I would be exhausted at this point. You know, if I taught this morning and then, you know, you met me at the prayer banner and I pray for you and God does something in your life and then I go to somebody's house this afternoon and there's some ministry that organically happens there and then there's all this other ministry that happens in the evening, I would be so tired. I'd be worn out. But what I love here is that Jesus wakes up early. This is still in the same 24-hour span. It's before synagogue would have started the, the, night be, or the morning of. And that in verse 35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. I would have been like, that was a long day. I'm sleeping in. But Jesus is like, I'm getting up early. Be, Mark is emphatic about it. He says, very early, and then almost in a redundant way says, it was still dark out, in case you didn't trust him, that it was very early. Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. Solitary is the same word that was used for wilderness. It's like desolate. There's nobody around. And he just spent time praying. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. And what I think we see here is that he had a regular rhythm of renewal, of solitude, of time with the Father, of communion with the Father. And it, actually, if you chart Jesus' ministry throughout any of the Gospels, the busier he gets, the more often he leaves. As his ministry continues to grow, you also see he continues to leave sooner and more often. That he's modeling for us that we serve out of the overflow of what we're receiving from God. That we can't keep giving, giving, giving to the point where we have nothing left. We, we need that connection with the Father. That's where we get assignment. That's where we get clarity. That's where we get calls to be what he's asking us to be. As we kind of look at this 24-hour span of Saturday morning into Sunday morning for Jesus where he's teaching and healing and casting out demons and then waking up early to be refreshed and refueled for the new ministry of the next day, we see this natural rhythm that Jesus has, receiving in the morning, pouring out all day. If Jesus, the Son of God, needs that, how much more do we need that? How much more do we need to get up, to spend time in the Word, to spend time in prayer, getting what we need for this day of ministry. Not coasting off an old time with the Lord, not coasting off a little conversation or something we saw that inspired us, but really spending time in his presence, being recharged and refueled. As I was meditating and just looking at this day in Jesus' life, I was struck by the fact that he spent time doing ministry in the synagogue. He spent time doing ministry at a home, and he spent time doing ministry outside. I think some of us like to relegate ministry to one of those areas. We have a natural tendency towards one of them. We're like, church is good, but like, it's all about meeting with people in my home, at a restaurant, doing life on life, and, and opening up the word together and hearing from each other to the point where you almost dismiss the importance of gathering. Or some of us love to gather so much that we're like, yes, church, we're going to worship together as a community. I'm going to see the people I love. They're going to encourage me. I'm going to encourage them. Or they're going to pray for me when I'm having a hard time to the point where we're like, yeah, 
meeting together is like, that's fine. It's a good bonus. It's a good extra. But Jesus models throughout his ministry and in the book of Acts, the apostles model that it is both and. That it is, is gathering and scattering. That it is corporate ministry to the Lord and then corporate mission to the world around us. That's how I like to kind of differentiate ministry and mission. Ministry is like to God's people and mission is to the people who don't know God yet. And we need both. We need it inside and outside. It's both gathering and scattering. It's in the church and in the marketplace. There was no place that was off limits to Jesus' in ministry to the point where when he wanted to rest, he didn't go to a home. He went to the wilderness. Because so many of us, the home is the safe place, which makes sense. It's different than it was then. Back then, a home, you know, had a little courtyard in the middle and kind of four houses attached to it. And then the middle was where they would do the cooking and the cleaning. It was like a shared common space. So you could have multiple families, your whole extended family, grandma, grandpa, aunts, cousins, everybody living together. So if you were like, I want some peace and quiet, you're not necessarily going to go home. But Jesus models that he leaves to have time alone in silence and solitude, in the desolate place, in the solitary place. I love what happens in verse 36. Simon, who's Peter, and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Why are you out in the desert? Why are you out in the wilderness? Why are you out in the solitary place? In modern day, it would be like, Jesus, you are trending on Twitter right now. Jimmy Fallon's people have been leaving voice messages, waiting for you to get on the show. They're, you're blowing up. You went viral. Everybody's looking for you, and you just disappeared. But Jesus understood that his, his ministry and message wasn't just to become famous, but was to lay his life down. In Mark 10, what we just quoted a little bit ago, verse 45, he didn't come to be served, but to serve, to lay his life down as a ransom for, many, for ministry, for many we have the opportunity to live our lives modeled after Jesus. That we're more concerned about the people we haven't ministered to yet than growing the crowd who's already following. That he's living a life on mission. Jesus, after they say everyone is looking for you, responds and says, let us go somewhere else. Which is counterintuitive, right? Jesus, the crowd's warmed up. They're ready. They're excited. Come on. Let's do some ministry. Let's do some miracles. Let's hear some teaching. And Jesus is like, no, we're going to move on. And it also struck me that Jesus said this right after he spent time in prayer. Because oftentimes it's, it's when we finally remove ourselves from the busyness and the, the fast pace of life and slow down and hear from God that we can come out with clarity. So often we're like, God, I can't hear from you, but you haven't slowed down to actually listen. You're in such a hurry. God, I'm waiting for you to speak to me while I'm listening to this podcast and driving and talking to somebody on the phone. We're not actually creating space to stop and hear from God. The busier Jesus got, the more often he slowed down. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. He's like, I am more busy than normal, so I need to spend more time with God than normal. That we get clarity and focus, that you can get more done in less time when you do it with the presence of God going with you. When you carry in that secret and sacred place. 
Jesus left with clarity and focus, saying, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. I haven't come to gather a crowd. I've come to preach that the kingdom is here. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A day in the life of Jesus. A day filled with ministry in every sphere, in the synagogue, in the home, outside, to the crowd, to small groups and large groups, but fueled by time alone in prayer. It says he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons, doing ministry. The implication Mark has is that this day in the life of Jesus is pretty indicative of what he did all the time. This was a pretty normal day for Jesus. He continued to preach. He continued to drive out demons. And in the end of the first chapter of Mark, after he gives us a day in the life of Jesus, he ends with one thought, one more story. A story that doesn't fit into that day, but it's interesting that he adds it on because there's no section headers or breaks in Mark's story. There's no chapters. This is, he gives you a life in the day of Jesus and then immediately follows it saying this. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And then this is interesting. This is a part that people disagree on, on how to translate because there's two different words here in different manuscripts. Some say, and Jesus was moved with compassion, and others say Jesus was indignant, which is two really different responses. Like, he's either kind of upset that he, that he even got asked that, like, if you are willing, of course I'm willing, or he's moved with compassion. But either way, we see that he loves the person and that he's, if he's indignant, it's with their sickness. And so look at what happens. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And so this is, this is like a huge miracle. This one is different than some of the others. Because leprosy was a horrible disease. Like, your body is slowly decaying, and you are losing fingers, you are losing toes, you have, you have rashes all over your body. It's horrible. And you are unclean. In Leviticus, the book we were talking about earlier, where it talks about clean and unclean, there's two chapters about what to do if you have um, leprosy and how to cleanse yourself if you're somehow healed from leprosy, which, like, never happened. In fact, you were supposed to yell, unclean, unclean, anytime you came within 50 feet of somebody. Can you imagine the humiliation and shame that came with that? You literally weren't allowed to live in the city. You lived in the outskirts. You were an outcast. People stayed away from you. If you had a, a lax rabbi, one who's pretty nice in your synagogue, they would let you come early and stay behind a black curtain, and then you couldn't come out until everybody else had left synagogue. That would be like if there was somebody who literally is in the back corner right now who came before all of you just so that they could be a part of church and isn't allowed to come out and talk to anybody and has to leave after everybody else has left. They're an outcast. In fact, if you touched somebody with leprosy, you became unclean. You had to go through a ritual ceremony of cleansing just from touching them. And nobody did because they were worried about catching it. It was contagious. But look what Jesus did. Not only does he say, I'm willing, he reached out his hand and touched him. And it's not, it's not some weird thing where it's like Jesus had to touch him to perform the miracle. It's not like this power thing, because we see Jesus just speak words and people are healed. 
You know, that guy comes and he's like, Jesus, if you'll just speak the word, my servant at home will be healed. And Jesus does it. It's not that he had to. It's that he wanted to. He wanted to intentionally touch somebody who had been untouchable, who was unlovable, who was an outcast of society. I think Mark puts this story after a day in the life of Jesus to show you that that Jesus' real nature was just to love people, to truly serve. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. He sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. He's like, you know Leviticus 13 and 14. Go and do that. But the guy doesn't. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet people still came to him from everywhere. Did you notice that line? but Jesus stayed outside in lonely places. What Jesus does for the leper in this moment is an exchange. Like, he becomes somebody who can't enter society normally because that person couldn't before. That person goes and shares the news, and Jesus, therefore, is stuck outside because of the large crowds. He touched somebody who was unclean. Normally, that would make him unclean, But in this instance, that person became clean. It was a reversal of everything that had been happening up to that point. Before that, if you touched them, you were unclean. Now Jesus touched them and they became clean. This is a mini picture of the gospel. It's what Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter 3 when he says that Jesus became cursed. I'm looking for it in my notes. Jesus became, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus' whole life and ministry is headed towards the death and resurrection, his death on a cross, the payment for our sins. He didn't come to be served, but to, to serve, to lay his life down. He, he took our place. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, our separation from God because of our uncleanness, our sin. He became that. He became sin. In fact, another spot, Paul says, he became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. It's what's happening in this picture of leprosy, that as Jesus touches him, instead of him becoming unclean, he becomes clean. That's what Jesus did on the cross is he took away our sin by becoming sin, but sin and death couldn't hold him, and he became, he rose again on the third day. Mark's showing us from the beginning in in his first chapter, Jesus came with authority, but that authority was to enable him to serve, to lay down his life for others, that there is no one off limits for Jesus. There is no one too far gone. If you notice what the leper says, he says, if you are willing you can make me clean. The leper has faith that Jesus has power to heal. He's unsure if Jesus is willing to heal. I wonder if sometimes we're like that in our life. God has the power to move in my life. I have an easier time to believe in the power of God than the mercy of God. I wonder if there's an area where where you believe that God can, you just don't believe that he will. 
But Jesus says, I am willing. He's willing to touch the untouchable. He's willing to move in your life. There is no sin, no thing that you have done that separates you too far from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Sometimes it's easier to believe God's power than his mercy, but God's mercy is what motivates him to come and die on the cross for us. It's a picture of the gospel. As we look at the day of the life in Jesus, we also get a picture of the kingdom. Jesus just announced the kingdom of God is here, and then we see what a day in the life of Jesus looks like in the kingdom. It looks like freedom from oppression and bondage. It looks like love that breaks down barriers. It looks like healing and wholeness. It looks like love and compassion. It looks like time alone with the Father. If we're going to be followers of Jesus and live a life in the kingdom, that's what it should look like for us too. Maybe you've been around church for a while and you've kind of been learning about who Jesus is and you've, you've recognized your own sinfulness and need for a Savior, that, that you've fallen short of God's standard, but you didn't know if this was actually for you. You didn't know if, will God actually save me? There's no way. He can't forgive me for that. He can. He wants to. He's willing Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's simply reaching out and saying, God, heal me too on the inside. Transform me. Forgive me for my sin. If that's you this morning, I want to pray with you. And it's it's not a magical prayer. It's just a declaration saying, God, I'm turning from the way I was walking. What we talked about last week with John the Baptist, I repent, I'm turning, and I'm following you now. Give me brand new life. So simply pray something like this, God, thank you for your love for me. Thank you for sending Jesus to make a way when there was no way, that he is the truth, and he is the way, and he offers life. Forgive me for my sin. Make me clean on the inside. I believe that Jesus died for my sin so that I could have the righteousness of God. I'm choosing from this day forward to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that, let somebody know. We'd love to cheer you on and help you as you start your journey of following Jesus. For those of us who've already made that decision, which I know is a lot of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, We say our mission statement here is helping people find hope and take their next step in following Jesus. If we want to follow Jesus, we need to live lives of mercy. People who have authority, not of our own, from God to serve the world around us. That we're servant leaders, that we lay our life down for people around us, that we serve them with the power and love of God. So the team's going to join me here in a minute, and we're just going to thank God for the living hope that we have that because of what he's done, we have eternity promised to us and that that hope is Jesus. So my prayer is that as you sing that, as you declare that, that you are my living hope, God, that that hope would propel you to do what he said, that he has all authority. Now go make disciples. And making disciples looks like loving people and serving people in the authority of God. Let's do that together as a church and see how God changes our families, our communities, and our city. Let's stand and sing. 
Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear about what God is doing in your life. To share your story or a prayer request, simply hit contact on our website. You can also support the ministry of Hope Culture Church by visiting hopeculturechurch.com give. We hope you have a great week.